welcome to another episode of the Recovery Guys podcast. We're listener supported, so thank you for listening. Welcome to the Recovery Guys podcast, episode number two. I'm here with my co-host, Alex, and my name is Matt. That's right. Thanks for tuning in again. So uh, what, are we t- what are we talking about this week, Miguel? Well, we got a lot of positive feedback from our broad audience that we were able to amass during our first episode. We had a pretty good response from people in the regional community, but thanks to this being a podcast that will be available on the World Wide Web, we would like to get uh, feedback, questions, commentary from people from anywhere that have interest in recovery and the lifestyle that's attached to it. And so our main podcast host, if you head on over to that that website, there's an option there where you can uh, you can leave audio feedback. You can leave a little recording for us, and you know if we if we like what you got to say, or if your question is poignant, then we can play it during the show and and kind of dig into it a bit. Yeah, and we'll either help you immensely or have you feeling judged. Uh, either way, we benefit from it, and we hope you will too. So enjoy our character flaws. Because we definitely will enjoy yours. <laughs> so this week we wanted to uh, to get into more of a general introduction into who we are, what we are, why we do what we do. Isn't that right? Yeah, we just wanted to give a bit of background to why we're doing this, why it has appealed to us, and some of our you know general summary of our lived experience in recovery and how we were able to help either by having personal accounts of what people have gone through or because of the experience we have through being in proximity of people from all walks of life, backgrounds, trial and error that they may have had in their recovery journey and, you know, how we've been able to have any sort of influence or at least had an impact from their journey. So we're really looking to be able to... be, have a more informal dialogue with uh, with our audience and, and be able to give any sort of guidance or perspective change or, or having them question their current position in recovery, people that are feeling discouraged, people that are feeling encouraged by their, you know, their journey, their attempts, any sort of frustrations, uncertainties that they may be dealing with because either Matt or myself have endured them or lived through them or succeeded through them or somebody that we've known close in our lives has possibly gone through whatever the listeners may be experiencing. So we're, we're looking to give people a platform to ask for help in a more informal and if needed in a discreet and anonymous way. And, uh, you know, just listen in and get some feedback and hopefully take that back to their personal reflection or to their support group or to their mentor in recovery and find a way to come up with some guidance or a solution that'll make them, you know, improve their path. So like Alex was saying, part of it is perhaps about personal improvement, uh, self-betterment and th- that type of thing. And then part of it is just entertainment. Part of it is that, that you've got to find something enjoyable uh, in recovery and find new and interesting ways to look at your life, to get a better perspective. And I think that part of what we want to do is, is help people get there while entertaining them. Yeah, I've heard a lot of times in the different treatment or recovery scenarios that have been in in different uh, recovery communities uh, across Canada and in Mexico and in the Northwest United States, how people would feel 
it very beneficial if what they were experiencing were a hidden camera show. They see it as some very entertaining uh, reality TV. And, uh, you know, we're not going to patch into any particular uh, recovery scenario and give you guys a live feed. Unfortunately, there's a lot of uh, ethical boundaries that would be crossed if we were to do that. But we do want to emphasize that through trial and error, we're able to look back on our own experiences and have a bit of a laugh at, you know, how, how silly we were, how short-sighted we were, immature, undisciplined, and be able to learn from that without being too hard on ourselves or onto the people that have been going through the different experiences that are challenging, right? Because recovery, part of the interest in it is that it's uh, fun, uh, it's unsettling at times, but it definitely creates encouragement within the people that are practicing it that if the person has a, a purpose and is you know, headed in a direction of improvement, there should be trial and error. There should be mistakes that are being made and that by telling them to people in their lives, they're going to be able to get a, a bit less emotionally attached to the outcomes. With that being said, uh, we're both self-identified drug addicts, right? Like we, we both uh, at some point in our lives have had some substantial problems with, with drug use and through independent means, however we found our way here, we're both in recovery uh, from drug use. So we no longer do that, but at one point in time, we did. So we'll, we'll be using some pretty key language uh, going forward, and we'll make sure to give a definition of the language we're using once in a while, just so that our listeners that may have different jargon or different slang in their recovery communities may not be you know, as accustomed to them. So We'll be speaking in uh, living clean language and recovery. So living clean for us personally, and I know it's the same for Matt, uh, means that we are abstinent from all mind and mood altering substances, any sort of controlled substances, but also that we make an effort to be as clean in our lifestyle as well. So that would mean, uh, you know, we're free from any sort of uh, problematic uh, gambling, um, promiscuity, uh, any excessive uh, exposure to media or, or any sort of thing that soothes a person without really giving a sense of genuine healing. Those are the things that we, we identify as being clean from. And when we talk about recovery in general, we mean recovery from being an active, destructive addiction. And um, so, you know, we'll, we'll take this opportunity to give a bit of background of what brought us here. We're, we're not necessarily going to tell you a large war story, but just a summary, if you will, of the back of our hockey or baseball card and some of the statistics that you're, you're able to amass over the years. So, Matt, how long have you been clean? Like, what's your clean date? Uh, my clean date is April 3rd, 2001. Okay, so me not being a math whiz, how many years is that clean? That's 18 years. 18 years. So that's, uh, you know, a lifetime for a lot of our listeners of having not endured any hardship from the use or for being exposed to in any way to any sort of drugs. And so before that 18 years, what was the date again? March? It was April 3rd, 2001. That's what I said. So April 3rd, 2001. So what sort of pollutants or what sort of lifestyle were you leading from uh, the earlier part of April in 2001 and backward? Oh, well, I would say that it could easily be described as either a gigantic mess or a tragedy. One of those two. Uh, the, the days and months leading up to the day I got clean 
they they were uh, fuzzy, right? And days blurred together. There's periods of time where I was awake for multiple days in a row, four or five, six days in a row. Were you in a sleep testing in Sweden for deprivation or how come? I, I was not part of a, a scientific testing, although some part of my subconscious was definitely trying to convince me that I was. Uh, no, I was I was using uh, stimulant drugs, uh, stimulant drugs that, that uh, to such a degree that I would stay awake for, like I said, four or five, six days straight, um, all day, every day. And to the point where I had pushed myself uh, deep into chemically induced psychosis, where I would uh, see and hear things that weren't there, believe things that that weren't true. Um, you know, I, I was certifiable. That sounds pretty awful. So what brought you to the place where you thought you weren't able to make a massive adjustment, which sounds like you needed on your own? Well, uh, you know, through the, the help of our, our local RCMP, uh, you know, they... Which they, is the Royal Canadian Mounted Police for our out-of-country listeners. They assisted me in uh, finding my way into uh, a lovely uh, room where I was unable to access substances. The room uh, was a jail cell, so I, I got uh, uh, arrested and, and charged with a, a number of things that were related to the activities and lifestyle that I was living at the time. And that began my journey uh, into recovery. I, up until that day, was doing whatever I had to do to support uh, the habit that I had, which was a significant one, like on the order of $700 to $1,000 a day uh, in stimulant drugs. And, and whatever I had to do to support that, to get the money to fund that habit I was doing, um, so in the, you know, the days and months leading up to, uh, my arrest, I, uh, you know, was doing highly questionable activities, uh, things that were outside of the law. And to a certain degree, I'm, I'm thankful that I was stopped by the RCMP. I was thankful that I was arrested, uh, because even though I knew I had a problem, even knew, though I knew I, I no longer wanted to use drugs that had gone way beyond the point of being fun, I was not able to stop on my own. I was not able to discontinue using it. And so them arresting me was the only thing, the only thing I could think in this entire world that would have caused me to stop using. Well, you're calling it arresting now. A moment ago, you call it assisting, which is a very mature perspective to have on any sort of interaction with the police. And I, I think like looking back on it, the fact that you did call it assisting earlier, you have some reflection back towards it in, in a grateful way and in a feeling that it was a blessing in disguise. And really, like nowadays with where the whole uh, introduction to treatment or to recovery with all the boom and trendiness of uh, interventions, which, you know, can be costly, you got a government sponsored intervention by people in uniform with name tags. So that's pretty fancy in some sense. Yeah. I mean, it is a white glove service. You yeah. know, they put gloves on before strip searching me. So it was, it was fantastic for everyone involved. Yeah. The Royal Canadian Mounted Police is known to be very professional and formal in the way they proceed in interacting with the public. <laughs> so my introduction to recovery didn't stop there. Obviously, you know, you get arrested, you get released from prison with, you know, some papers, a promise to appear, those type of things. Uh, if the crimes are, are not too heinous and if you can be relied upon to appear in a court of law. So um, that's uh, that's essentially what happened. I got released and I went into 
community-based service that had counselors, and they referred me to a residential treatment facility, uh, which I attended the following day. And I stayed there for seven months. Wow, sounds like the hastiness of the the whole events that transpired there kind of helped you not have an opportunity to be idle and overly think your situation to the point where you found a side door or, a, or an exit. Yeah, I think that if I had other options to exercise, I probably would have. But at the rate things were going, um, I ran out of options. Like I had burned bridges with friends. I had burned bridges with family, uh, you know, had lost a job. I was out of school at that point in time. And it's like every other opportunity, every couch I could have possibly surfed on, that had played itself out. So the end result was you're in treatment, figure it out. And and that's what I did. You know, I listened to the people around me. I got exposed uh, to various 12-step communities and and did that for 18 years. And here I am. So briefly, after 18 years, making this pretty transformational shift in the way you were living, what would draw you to still be involved in a recovery community and, and have any interest in even doing something like this when you're so far removed from the last day you ingested a disgusting piece of drug? Well, I think that there's different flavors of people, right? Like uh, there's folks out there that, that might get involved in recovery and get their lives back on track and then they go and and, you know, live their lives. They go and do whatever. They get a job at a financial consulting company or something like that. I, I think for me, there is an appeal in it to continue helping people. Like, I had done seven months in treatment. And I, I talk about it like doing time, but it wasn't really. And I got exposed to uh, helping other people. I got exposed to the, the feeling uh, the sense that you get when you see someone else succeed as a result of you helping them. And it was, a, it was a really exciting feeling that I had. I liked seeing other people succeed. I liked being a part of their success and I wanted more of it. So this is a field that, that I got into. I, I you know, ended up volunteering at uh, you know, treatment centers. I, I went to school to learn how to counsel appropriate, appropriately and ethically. And it's, it's a career path that I chose. Not, not many other people I think that have gotten into um, recovery would perhaps choose to devote their life to this, but there are a select few that do. And I think that, that you're one of them and I'm certainly one of them. And I think that if anything, it's helped me maintain the recovery, uh, the standard of recovery that I've got in my own life by helping other people in real life. Uh, overcoming their problems with them, uh, learning how to, to keep other people on the straight and narrow. For some reason, it's a, there's a reciprocal effect where it helps me stay on the straight and narrow. Yeah, and, and, and to sound corny here on purpose, it's a high on it all on its own to be able to witness, uh, you know, the transformation of somebody going from completely uh, hopeless and, and purposeless and, and kind of lacking any sort of motivation other than to continue causing damage to themselves to being functional members of society, family members, productive, tax-paying, law-abiding citizens. It, it is definitely rewarding and it definitely helps uh, reiterate the value of us being involved in that in the first place, right? 
And, you know, this, this is a lot about me, and I'm sure our listeners are somewhat curious about you. How did you wind up in recovery? So I had a few uh, instances of assistance by the uh, local RCMP, also uh, several regional police departments in the region of uh, British Columbia that I lived in, uh, Vancouver Police Department, the Port Moody City Police uh, were, you know, on a first name basis with me as I was a young teen and an emerging adult. And um, after a couple of uh, drinking and driving incidents and a couple of uh, other minor charges, uh, I, I was given an ultimatum more by my family than by the police because they were able to point at different things being my dysfunction other than the substance use. However, you know, being 19 years old and being addicted to several different drugs and, and being involved in car wrecks usually is a, a red flag or, or, a, or, you know, a bushel of red flags, if you will, for, for most people in, in, in North America. So uh, I just to breeze through it, I uh, was pressured into going to residential treatment in October of 1998 and then in December of 1998 and then in March of 1999, May of 99, August of 99, October of 1999 and then <laughs> hang on a sec. Okay. I was able to stay clean for six and a half months and then I wasn't clean anymore and then I had an eight and a half year break in between asking for help until uh april of 2008 so all those dates you just mentioned those were all you going to treatment yes every one of those yes that's a lot of time and how many times even, is that in my whole lifespan it's been so i had this conversation with a friend of ours gord who will be on the program at some point we were arguing about how many times we've been to treatment and my original uh, estimate of counting a time gone to treatment was if I stayed longer than a few days, long, like longer than a month or something. So my old count used to be nine, but Gord corrected me by saying something pretty reasonable saying, if you register as a resident in an assisted living facility and you hand over your keys, if you have any, and your phone and wallet, if you have any, which most of the times I personally didn't, then that counts as going to treatment. So under that classification, I've been to treatment 16 times. Oh, man. So we've got pretty different experiences. Yes. And I know, and I know I'm cutting you off a bit in your, your story and your backstory, but I just want to highlight, I've been to treatment one time. You've been to treatment 9 to 16. Depends we're, who's judging, yeah. We're roughly the same age. Yes. Like in the same decade. Same generation. Sure. Same generation. That's a significant difference. Yes. And I think it's important to highlight, too, that, that not everyone's path to recovery is going to look the same. Like, were there something that those 9 to 16 other treatment centers did that was deficient? N not at all. I would like to think so, because every time I left one of those and promptly resumed using drugs, I would find a way to feel like a victim and act hard done by and, and you know undergo a few days or weeks or months or years of feeling sorry for myself. But every single place I ever went to, and some of them I went to multiple times, there was always evidence of function from the residents that were there when I had stopped by who were able to maintain abstinence for a long period of time. So what is your clean date? 
My clean date is January 10th, 2012. Which makes you... Just over seven and a half years. Seven and a half years clean. That's fantastic. What do you think was different that last time? I'm guessing, did you go to treatment that last time? Oh, absolutely. I'm the kind of last gasping mouth breather that is not able to get even 24 hours clean unless there's some sort of massive barrier, usually a spatial one between me and acquiring drugs. So what was different that last time? Uh, I think similar to what you said near the end of your uh, summary description, I was able to develop a purpose for watching other folk getting clean and staying clean and having a value in that introduced me really, really quickly. So just briefly, I'll describe my first few days in treatment the last time. Um, I had just been at a recovery house in the town that I live now for four days. And because I found out that I had $50, a broken iPhone 4 that I could probably sell, and some designer hipster chapstick, I classified myself as being too high-end to require residential treatment. So I asked for my belongings, and I left, and immediately started doing drugs again in the downtown east side of Vancouver that same night, because I had nowhere to go. I called a place that I'd been to five times before and failed and asked them to go there. Within a day, I said to one of the counselors who happened to be a person I mentored years earlier, who now is working there, I said, you need to take me to the hospital. I'm gonna finish my life today off of that sprinkler system if you don't take me to the hospital. And it was more of a cry for help, attention, knowing that the hospital would give me drugs probably and have pool and maybe TV. And he said, you know what? That guy sitting across the room from me right now has never been here before, you have, can you at least walk him through our daily schedule for the next couple of days? Like you don't value your life enough to keep it. Why don't you just do that? And then if you want, you can kill yourself. We don't care. I was highly offended. I thought it was very unethical and insensitive language to use towards a popular, sorry, a vulnerable population such as myself. <laughs> I thought you were about to say popular patient. But no, it, it, I was very unpopular. I was actually, people were scoffing and rolling their eyes that I was back there again. And I started to do that. I started helping a man who was 64 years old. He was from Arizona. He had never sought treatment before. His kids, you know, brought him there through a lot of incentivizing for him to access his grandkids. And I spent time with him every single day doing written work, uh, doing chores, eating meals together. And it, it inspired me to care about somebody else to the point where eventually I started to care about myself. And I think that's the theme for today. People cared about us long enough that we eventually started caring about ourselves. And in doing so, we started to care about other people. Maybe there's something to it. Maybe that's what helped us figure it out. I think it's a combination of things. And it's an idea that I've rolled around in my head a lot. What makes me different from the guy that didn't get it? The guy that didn't get clean, the guy that didn't change his life. What makes me any different than that guy? Is it a choice? Is it the way I'm built? Is it something with my own brain chemistry? Well, that makes me different. Maybe that's a hint, what Alex was just talking about. Maybe there's some insight there. Maybe we'll find out more next time on the Recovery Guys podcast. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. We really appreciate you. Sometimes funny, man.